Have you ever wondered why it's difficult to give your attention, energy, and take action on what matters the most to you? Or to speak up with clarity from the best part of yourself? If that's you, then you're in the right place. The follow-through formula is dedicated to providing daily inspiration for you to follow through on the real you. Welcome back, everybody. This is Rick Lewis. This is episode 34 of the Follow Through Formula podcast. And uh, this will be the third interview with my friend, Dr. Musician John Souza, because I love my conversations with John and I hope you love him too. And I have some important questions for John this time around. So, John, Welcome back to the Follow Through Formula podcast. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, Rick. Thank you. And just to be clear, he's not actually here with me inside of my shower stall. What he means is <laughs> virtually. Uh, Aditya, my son, was with me. He's the very first interviewee that actually entered my studio. And that was challenging, but very fun. He, he did a great interview, by the way. Uh, so here we are, and I want to talk to you about a couple of things. Here's my first question. Put on your doctor hat, not your musician hat. Well, you can wear the musician hat if you want, but is follow through good for our mental health? Yes. I would say, yeah. Um of course, I qualify everything because there's always an exception to every rule, even that there's always an exception to every rule. <laughs> okay, that that goes along with 95% of statistics are made up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Precisely. So, you know, our brains love to have hard and fast rules. The world's just easier that way. Uh, so this is all qualified with, you know, there are going to be variations. I've made different... it a point never to have hard and fast rules. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just slow and soft ones. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, I think they are in general. Uh, it, it's rather follow through is good for your brain in general, um, for your sense of being able to accomplish things, self-efficacy, you know, social learning theory, which is, um, it's an older theory of, of human development from a guy named um, Albert Bandura. Uh, he said that basically we learn by observation. We learn by watching other people. And from that was born this idea of self-efficacy. Now, one of the things that we're trying to develop in our lives is a sense of being able to handle whatever situations are going to arise. And so I think follow through it increases that. I think it, there are other things that increase that. But in my experience, personally, I would say the more I follow through with something, the more I feel like I can follow through with things. And then it becomes cyclical, reinforcing. Right. So last week I brought up the subject or the word anxiety 
And I loved how you called me out on that. And you said, that's a junk word, man. That Throw that word in the garbage. That's a junk word. <laughs> wow. I love, I love the response to that. No, but um, just your point that, okay, come on, let's call it what it is. Anxiety is fear. And when we're up against fear, neurologically speaking, taking action in relationship to that fear must be good for our mental health, like to do something with the fear, to channel it in some way and uh, guide ourselves back to a sense of agency in relationship to whatever it is we're, you know, feeling nervous or scared about, that seems positive. Right. Agency, it's another way of saying self-efficacy. Um, certainly, there are a lot of studies that suggest facing our fears Behaviorists might call it in vivo desensitization, you know, where we enter into a situation that would produce anxiety or fear in order to expose ourselves to it so that it, it feels less fearful, uh, it provokes less of that anxiety response. Right. So yeah, I think that's the whole idea here is the more you can do something uh, whenever you're experiencing fear the less likely you are to feel as much fear next time. Right. So exposure therapy is a real thing, right? That That's an actual form of therapy. Yeah. In vivo, we call it. Oh, okay. In vivo, that's the same as exposure. Yep. In vivo desensitization. How come you always have really fancy ways of saying things that I try to say one way and then you've got a better way of saying it? Why is that? Because I, pay, I paid a lot more money for my diploma. <laughs> hey i paid a lot of money that was 69 dollars from that institute of bolivian <laughs> backwoods institute that i got that from it's up on my wall okay um so we've proven you have better terms for things than i do that's the first thing we've accomplished so far in this <laughs> podcast <laughs> secondarily um exposure two things that create a, a stoppage in us. And I, I like to call them stop rules that we have internally, these stop rules. And the stop rules are old programming that comes from stuff that happened a long time ago where we got scared or shamed or judged. And a part of our brain just made a little mental note and said, I'm never doing that again. And from that point on, whenever you run into a circumstance in your life that has any associations with those cues that were registered at that moment in time, your brain sends out the stop rule signal and goes, well, caution, warning, don't talk to redheads, don't pet stray dogs, don't stand up in front of the class and say anything, whatever it is, whatever the, the rule was. And we carry those for a lifetime unless we update them with adult learning experiences. And I've often referred to these unaddressed patterns as youth learning experiences. And we have to actually design adult learning experiences into our lives to remap those youth learning experiences. Does that correspond with your thinking about how this can work? 100%. I would say that's exactly what all psychotherapy is, is helping people have these 
adult learning experiences. And unfortunately, I think our society has held out hope that there's going to be a, a fast and easy way to do that. Um, but I think time has told us that's just not how it works. There is no magic pill. There is no magic technique. You know, like right now, what's called EMDR, uh, eye movement, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is basically somebody moves their finger back and forth. And the idea is that as your eyes go back and forth and you're processing difficult memories, that it gets reintegrated or, or processed in a way that mm -hmm. makes it less present or less controlling of your day-to-day -day experiences and thoughts that that's sort of like the the big thing now everyone's everyone wants emdr because it's fast and it's quick and can work through tons of stuff i just don't see that in my own practice uh I, i've tried emdr i've gone through some trainings and not calling out emdr specifically i would say in general though our our society is very much looking for fast and easy things to correct what are typically long standing patterns that will require right. at least half amount half the amount of time it took to form to resolve <laughs> right yeah that's a sobering thought but i right with you i mean my i've been on what i would call a, a personal growth path for um well i'm almost 60 and I got really interested in this when I was 14. So it's been 45 years. I've been actually studying and experimenting with and actively doing things to free myself from limit, limiting patterns. Hmm. And boy, does it take persistence and self-forgiveness and patience. It sure does. I'll tell you, Rick, I think one of the variables that is often overlooked or minimized in a society that focuses more on individual agency is context or environment. And just how much of a part context and environment plays in how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in his most recent book, Talking to Strangers, he highlights this phenomenon. And he looks at some different countries and different cultures and how they have different outcomes, partly because of the social cultural environment that's created, for example, around um, the use of alcohol. He compares a college drinking culture with the drinking culture of a working class society where they have no violence when they're drinking versus this college rape culture. So don't dismiss where you are in terms of every day you're in a different culture, different environment, and how that might affect your ability to really work on some of these in internal patterns that you have, you know, it can help move you forward or it can move you backward a little bit. You know, if you're in a right. crappy relationship with somebody, it's going to bring up a stress response and you're going to rely on those old patterns that are, more deeply embedded in the back of your brain, the fight flight place, as opposed to the prefrontal cortex where some of this new adult learning is happening. You know, and that's the whole neuroscience piece is how 
however often the back of the brain is activated will dictate just how likely you are to be able to create new neural density in the front part of your brain, in the neocortex. And mitigating both of those, or I should say bridging both of those is the, uh, the midbrain, which is all about connection, relationships, being able to relate to people. So the quality of your relationships can also have a huge effect on how well you can move through some of those old patterns that you developed in childhood. Yeah, this is complicated business. Like for one person to manage their own growth activity successfully, there has to be some real, um, a real sense of self-knowledge and self-understanding about what you can digest and what you're kidding yourself that you can digest. Because if you start eating more, taking in more than you can digest, meaning stretching yourself for growth in ways that are really just beyond where you're actually at, then everything works backwards. You're not making any progress. You're just actually triggering the defense postures that are habitual and kind of getting closed off and shut down rather than moving forward. It reminds me of the yerkes dodson curve, the, the work that they did where they show that enough, a little bit of stretch, a little bit of stressor to a certain extent actually will improve performance. But when the stressors reach a, a certain critical mass, performance plummets and you just get or incapacitated. Yeah, absolutely. Just to come back to your point there about whether or not stress goes into enhancing performance or degrading it is the quality of the relationships, the supportive relationships surrounding you. And that ties to a developmental theorist from Russia, uh, Vitsgotsky, who came up with the zone of proximal development. He says that to get from your comfort zone to where you can't imagine you could grow is this this in-between gap called the zone of proximal development that will allow you to get closer to where you don't think you could achieve. But it has to be done. It can only be broached with the support of someone else, someone that has a little bit more knowledge, cool. basically a mentor. Cool. Well, mentor, you mean someone who's a little in front of you on the path, or could it be peers who are attempting the same transformation? I think it has to be somebody who's a little bit ahead of you, but I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know how to qualify what a little bit ahead of you means. It could be a peer who is literally just like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, a couple of steps ahead. <laughs> well, maybe what's needed is you need to see an example of someone who to some extent has made the leap you're trying to make, because when you see it, you go, okay, I know it's possible. Yes. And that moment of seeing someone else who has taken the step you want to take or made the leap you want to make is so powerful. And I can just, I can say that in my own life experience, there's so many times where I've been trying to, I've been hitting my head against a wall and then I get myself around somebody who's actually done it. And I don't even, they don't even have to give me the play-by-play -play of how they did it. It's just being around that person and seeing, oh, they did this, that somehow shifts something in my cells. And I'm just like, okay, this is possible. I'm looking at it. It's right in front of me. Right. So what is that? That's fascinating. That's a fascinating dynamic. 
right? Yeah, there's that modeling, you know, somebody modeled social learning theory again, coming back to Bandura, social learning theory. When we see someone else doing it, we, we learn, we learn how to do it. I'm reminded of the, the four minute mile. You know, right. I don't know if you're right. No one thought that was possible for Ron Bannister. a long time. Yes, yes. And he comes along and he does it and everyone says, great, I guess we can do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, cool. Well, so like now, you know, that place where you get to where there's that leap you have to make, I would just call the hard part. Now I know I can call it the zone of proximal development. And <laughs> so I've just made a big leap in my ability to <laughs> sound more like I know what the hell I'm talking about. Perfect. And you didn't have to pay anything for the diploma. That's great. <laughs> That's right. So, okay, here's an interesting twist on the conversation. So my first question was, does follow through help your mental health? And we're agreed, and the research is agreed, that when you take action steps towards something that feels impossible or beyond your limits or difficult or scary, it frees something up in the neural pathways or reorders something that makes it easier to take those steps the next time. And so from there, the next question I have, and this is something I've just been thinking about today because I spent some of today practicing a game that I wrote probably a year ago. And the game is called Pause Before More. And the game essentially says when you're consuming an experience or an activity, we could use a simple example like dessert. And if you're eating dessert, if you're eating really quickly and it just tastes really good, you can wind up having four helpings without pausing, without even registering that you only needed two helpings or Do you one. you really only need two helpings though? I mean, four <laughs> sounds really great to me. <laughs> and how much you need is dependent on the quality of self-reflection that's inserted in the process of you consuming the thing. So for me, I was just moving that over to my work life, my work schedule and being on the computer. And I brought this up in a recent episode because I was sharing with the audience that I had gotten into kind of an obsessive addictive habit of checking the number of downloads of the podcast throughout the day. And I keep refreshing it like a rat press, pressing a lever for just the most delicious rat food that has ever been created. And I'm like, Absolutely. oh boy, oh boy. Three more people looked at it. Oh boy, 20 people just listened to it. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I'm like pressing the button over and over just to see how many people have, have downloaded. And uh, so I think it was just two days ago. My, it all blurs together now because since I'm doing one of these every day. But anyway, it was a couple of days ago I said, all right, I have noted that I'm doing this repeatedly. And today, I was recording at like 5 a.m. And I said, today, I will not check even one time I'm making this commitment. And I had the most wonderful day. It was hard at first. First few hours were hard. 
because I wanted that little hit, that little dopamine rush of, oh, a few more downloads. I refrained. And then it was just so nice to be free of that. It didn't take that long. It took half a day and then I was over it. And it was just such a sense of relaxation. And it helped me to keep my attention on what really matters right. and to follow through on what's actually important, which is the thing that would create that kind of result, not on checking if the result is happening. So uh, I'm trying to set the context for this next part of the question, which is, in that episode where I was speaking about refraining from that, I was just reflecting on how follow through can be as much about what we don't do or what we stop doing as it does what we start doing. And we typically think of follow through as an action step, but I think follow through has to include in our self-examination of our behavior, steps of restraint where we just stop doing certain things and that actually helps us maintain focus and energy and attention for what really matters. Well said. That's brilliant. Man, you got all that for free? You didn't have to pay for that? <laughs> this is this is the fruit of overthinking to a degree you can't imagine. <laughs> that is so spot on, man. It's the absence of things that can actually improve your ability to do things. Lots of people, I think, have framed this differently. I think of Stephen Covey and his Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or one of his follow-up books, First Things First, and he talks about production versus production capacity. You have to maintain your ability to produce by tending to the machines that allow you to produce. That means taking breaks. Um, meaning you're not going to produce for a while, but that is productive. Uh, Miles Davis, you know, he said it's music is more about the spaces, the silence mm -hmm. between notes, not the notes themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my wife, who I consider to be an expert in pretty much every way, um, she is uh, always telling me, reminding me to take a break in between things that I'm doing. She notices that I'll go from project to project to project. She says, you know, if you take a moment in between, you'll find that you're more effective in all of your projects. And it's true. And then just in my own experience, relating back to your checking of the podcast downloads or listens, I, I found myself doing that with Instagram. You know, uh, I was getting carried away with checking to see how many people had liked my whatever or following my page. Um, and I was getting obsessive about posting stories and posts and yeah, I had to recognize that that was not helpful. It was degrading my ability to do those things well. And in fact, there's something called the shallowing effect. Uh, it's a theory that came out when texting started to really come into the mainstream. And there was concern that youth were shallowing their ability to think. Uh, by texting, it, it limits how much you think, how much you say so that your thinking becomes just like your texting or a series of short bursts of thoughts that are impulsively sent as opposed to longer trains of thought that are 
more uh, thought out, more comprehensive, and that that can transfer into our own moral reasoning and how we wow. think about the long-term effect of our decisions. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot that suggests the more we can slow down and take breaks, you know, pregnant pauses, if you will, that it will increase our ability to pay attention, to think more deeply, to think more critically, and to have, uh, I think, a, a, the increased capacity to prioritize. What came up for me around this idea that follow through requires restraint and refraining from things, of course, brought to mind meditation and meditation is a, a practice, any form of self-reflection. I was just sitting in the living room at lunchtime, sitting in the sunshine next to a window. It's cold outside. I'm sitting in the warm sunshine, having lunch and just thinking, I can't imagine being happier than just doing nothing in my home, having a meal with nothing, there's nothing going on. There's, I'm just sitting in the sun. And I've had that experience often in my life. There are these touch points of the sublimity of just being present, mm. just how wonderful it is to just be without doing anything in particular. And it seems to be a very important ingredient in the, the follow through stew. I think that's right. And I, I think the quality of that nothing is something to be paid attention to, such as if you're sitting and enjoying the landscape and getting some nourishment for your soul, for your body, that's a high quality of nothing as opposed to scrolling through Instagram, you're not doing anything per se, you may just be hanging on the couch, but it, it's not the restorative kind of nothing. So you need, we all need restorative nothings in our lives more often. Uh, there's a guy named Bill Doherty at the University of Minnesota in the Family Social Science Department. And uh, he talks about busyness as sort of a disease of our time, of modern times, that it, it is a problem in our society. It degrades individuals and families and communities. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's spot on. That's what we need to pay attention to. I, I'm speaking from my own struggle with it. Boy, I struggle to not be busy. But like you said, I think if you are able to spend some time thinking about where that's coming from. For, for each person, it might be different. For me, it is definitely to feel a sense of worthiness, that my worth comes, my value comes from whatever I can produce, um, you know, over however many degrees I could have or however many places I could get a position as a, a faculty member or a clinical member, however many likes I can get, whatever your, your metric is. For me, it has to do with self-worth. And I guess for a, a lot of people, it would have to do with that sense of self-worth. I was taking some time even before that, before I was sitting for lunch, to really give thought to what I want to be doing right now. Who do I want to serve and in what way? What's most important to me? What do I want to be communicating? And that in itself was also 
a form of doing nothing, but it was reflecting on it was reflecting on the future. But I wasn't busy executing on something that wasn't fully examined. And that seems to be an important distinction. Like when I'm, if I'm executing on something, if I'm getting stuff done that isn't fully examined, like the why, the, what is this connected to? What's my aim? What's my purpose? What am I really here to do? And it's so easy for me to fill my day with get, I can be getting stuff done from, you know, moment my eyes are open to when I hit the pillow. That's not a problem. But the quality of those activities and their connectedness to a sense of something that's really important, that's the challenge. Yeah. Well said. An example of that for my own life recently, this last week, as I told you before, I've been working on this song. It's a little bit more complicated than, than other tunes I've made because there's so many individual guitar parts. And I was so worried. I've been so worried about being able to play those parts well, you know, doing take after take after take and getting the parts down. And so I'd get up super early. Okay, I got to try to record all these guitar parts before I lose this capacity at, you know, this peak performance capacity that I have right now. And I ended up having to re-record some parts because I just didn't, you know, it was not right because um, of the, the sound, the recording uh, background noise and whatnot. And I was getting increasingly frustrated and I recognized that that, that lack of pausing to really reflect and examine what's going on ended up I ended up wasting more time maybe not wasting okay but it's all experience potentially it's all useful information if I take the time to reflect on it so I, I'll take that back not necessarily wasting time it's not as uh, high quality time I, I will result it will lead to me feeling more frustrated than satisfied because I didn't take the time to pause and reflect in between my sessions or in between my recordings. I had this sense of urgency or what Stephen Covey, call, Covey calls that uh, scarcity mentality, that I'm gonna run out of something if I don't get it all done now. So instead of taking that reflective time to assess. I thought of wanting to start a club called the One Hour Down Club. Ooh. And imagine if we just had a group of us and somehow people just get together and you just daily chime in and go, did you manage to clear an hour where you just did nothing? And, you know, nothing could be any type of self-reflection, digestion, contemplative, could even be physiologically based, like, you know, you're going for a walk or having a bath, but just how many people could use that? Well, I think it's a great idea and it would, I almost guarantee it would lead to an increase in productivity, not a decrease. It's, it's amazing though, just thinking about that. I, I notice my own fear responses coming up like, what? An hour a day, I can barely find 15 minutes a day to sit down and you know take a breath. It's this sense of, it's this deep ideology especially in Western cultures, now I'm just speaking to the United States here, that this 
Your worth is in how much you do, how much you can do. And if you aren't able to succeed, it's your fault. That's a deep ideological truth in our society. Right. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It, you know, anyone can succeed in the United States, that kind of mentality. And it, it creates a real sense of isolation and potentially shame. Um, if you aren't able to do that, it's your fault. So I, I don't know what the answer is there. I think it's probably a both and that, yes, you can do something and you have to pay attention to your context, your relationships, because they can support or hinder your ability to be productive. For example, having a spouse who says, hey, why don't you take a break? Don't forget, taking a break here and there is a good thing. That's helpful. Right? As opposed to if I had a partner who was herself just totally, well, she is pretty driven, but she's, she held, she's pretty good at maintaining perspective too. It, but if she didn't have that, um, it would be really easy to just produce try to produce all the time. Doing nothing is a great idea. Sign me up. Okay, you're in. You're a founding member. All right. And so for the audience I would offer, while it, it is definitely a goal to work toward, let's say an hour of pausing a day, doing nothing, there is, um, there's no shame in trying and not succeeding the first time, the second time, the third time, the 20th time. Just continuing to take each day, each hour as a chance to start over. Uh, and, and maybe I'm saying this somewhat for myself too. I mean, most of what we share with people is we're trying to learn that lesson ourselves as well. So just reiterating the importance of being kind to ourselves, being gentle with ourselves. You brought up earlier the shoulds, you know, what we call shooting on ourselves. Don't don't should on yourself. Don't ought on yourself. Don't must on yourself. Um, and if you recognize that you're doing that, uh, that's a time to step in to a, a softer, compassionate place for yourself. And if you can't do it for yourself, reach out to somebody and ask them to offer you some compassion and kindness. Uh, you might need to get it from outside of yourself for a time. But that is one of the only things that can really bring you out of a, a low space or a funk and get you back into the the process of following through. I love that closing wisdom. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to share and dialogue back and forth. I love our conversations. Me too, as always. All right. Well, we'll stop here so that you can get back to all the things that you ought to be doing, that you must be doing, that you should be I should doing really right go. now, but you're not doing. <laughs> all right, John, thanks very much. Thank you, my friend, Rick, and uh, look forward to another time. This has been episode 34 of the Follow Through Formula podcast with my good friend, musician, and wise doctor, John Souza. I'm Rick Lewis. John won't be back tomorrow, but he'll be back soon because we like having him here. But I'll be. I'll be back tomorrow. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. 
Hey, thanks for being here and being a die-hard listener down to the last decibel. My vision for these conversations is that you get informed and inspired to take consistent action on the real you. If these podcasts help you to do that, I'm thrilled. And if you'd like to take that work to the next level, I invite you to join me inside the Life Leap community, where I'm creating a culture and a support network for those who want to pursue what matters most in their lives. To learn more, just go to gamesforconfidence.com and click on the Life Leap menu item. I'd love to see you on the inside, and otherwise, I'm sure we'll meet again in another episode.